Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. It's Election Day in America. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Okay, so the other day I said, uh, I quoted Casey Stengel, the legendary baseball manager who at the end of his career, managed the expansion New York Mets, which was the worst team in baseball history in its first year. And Stengel, in exasperation in September, as they were heading toward a 40 and 120 record, said, can't anybody here play this game? Once again, the Democrats in the House and in the Senate and the Democratic Party in general facing this gigantic ambitious effort to pass two gigantic ambitious spending bills the party is behaving like a bunch of amateur lunatics so much so that i keep trying to say to myself okay look this is a major political party in the united states it's full of smart people they're very able everybody that we're talking about got themselves elected to office uh sometimes under difficult circumstances they know what they're doing, but I, I strain to see what happened yesterday. Uh, and if you don't know what happened yesterday, we'll get into the we'll get into the weeds. But I strain to understand how you can look at this and say that this isn't the most self-destructive, amateurish, and frankly, uh, frighteningly destabilizing behavior for a political party that basically holds all the cards in Washington. Noah, um, let's talk about uh, what progressive caucus chief Pramila Jayapal said yesterday and then the response and then what happened after she said what she said. Okay. <clears throat> well, as insofar as I am familiar with the machinations that are going on in on Capitol Hill, it seems like you're more familiar with them. But what I know is... Jayapal and the progressives she speaks for presumably have completely caved, backed off everything. They don't they don't need assurances now from Manchin or Cinema as they did. They don't need legislative language like they did. They're not holding anything hostage like they were. They're going to take Joe Biden's word for it and pass something, anything, perhaps in response to a very unsatisfying emerging narrative that Democrats are latching on to that the only reason why they're in electoral dire electoral straits is because they haven't passed massive sweeping social legislation that changes the American civic compact forever. Um, I don't buy that, but it's something that is beginning to lubricate the gears. It seems like in Washington now does Jayapal speak for her caucus, all of them, probably not, but that doesn't seem to matter because it's all, it's, it's all theater because this, the bill doesn't exist. It does not exist. And they're still negotiating it. As of last night, late last night, um, one of the conference, because this is a reconciliation process, so every every committee gets to bite at their apple, and they produce their piece of the legislation. It's complicated, whatever. But they produce their piece of the legislation. That's what it gets voted on. And one of the conference chairs, or committee chairs, was saying that they're still trying to figure out how to get prescription drug pricing back in there. Right. It's really popular. They like prescription drug pricing when we're still arguing over the minutia of this sort of thing. And meanwhile... Right. Let, let leadership is saying, no, we're going to vote on this this week. Okay, so what? here's what here's what Pramila Jayapal said yesterday uh, afternoon out of nowhere. Quote, we, meaning the progressives, now feel like we have what we need. We are taking the president's word at the fact that he believes he can get 50 votes in the Senate. And I hope that the two senators that we've been waiting uh, on these months understand that this is a leap of faith. Now, this reading this, they could have passed the infrastructure bill any day over the last two months. And the last, I mean, they could have done it at any time. They are the reason, the progressives are the reason the bill is not going to pass. Digging deep into what the progressives are talking about, something interesting emerges. Uh, according to Punchbowl News, Jayapal and the progressives expect that they will have a margin of error for their own caucus's vote of around 10 to 15 votes, meaning 
they will be 10 or 15 of them will be able to vote no on the bill or whatever the bills are, the big uh, social spending bill and the infrastructure bill, because enough Republicans will vote for the infrastructure bill. That they that there will be 10 or 15 Republicans who will vote for the infrastructure bill, thus freeing up progressives to vote against the infrastructure bill or the infrastructure bill and the and so they can remain pure. If this is true and this is known in Washington, even if the Republican people in the Republican caucus in the House want to vote for the infrastructure bill. Why on earth would they give a pass to Biden's progressives, pull their chestnuts out of the fire, and be the reason that Democrats score this big victory? If Kevin McCarthy, the House, the leader of Republicans in the House, doesn't have the wherewithal to convince Republicans in the House not to vote for the bill, on the grounds that they do not want to give Democrats a big victory and that the Democrats themselves are going to feel emboldened to vote no to satisfy their own progressive bases, uh, why why would Republicans come in and save Biden's bacon? And but they the, won't. This is, go, but this, Christine, I think, is, this is why I think they really wanted this vote to happen before today. Because given what whatever today's election show, as we've said, even if even if you know Youngkin loses, but by it's a squeaker, you know that's in Virginia, it, the government, yes, in the Virginia gubernatorial election and and the New Jersey election. If if the signs of point towards you know backlash against the Democratic agenda, which it clearly does, if you believe the polls, that's bad for, and that actually is more incentive for these Republicans to say we're not going to cover for the progressives, and frankly, they shouldn't. I mean, it's it's it doesn't make sense for them. <laughs> Their coalition, if the momentum is headed in the direction of an upset in the midterm elections and a return of the of a Republican House. Well, this there, is, it was very easy to envision Republicans voting for the hard infrastructure bill after the Senate passed it by 69 votes. There was a ton of pressure on Republicans in the House to pass that really bipartisan piece of legislation. In fact, I remember reading National Review pieces about how Republicans shouldn't support that, in part because it would just pave the way for a $3 trillion spending bill and, and remove the obstacle of hard infrastructure. It was a very live debate back in the day, three months ago. It hasn't been a live debate in a very long time. So, But John, you're, yeah. you're saying why should, they, why should they give them the win on the reconciliation? No, 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 any win. Oh, I see. I mean, it's it's very weird. The whole thing is very weird. In other words, the progressives don't care about the infrastructure bill. They but only care about the social spending bill. I have an answer. Okay. I mean, I don't know that it's a, the good, okay. or, a good or right answer. But um, if they don't, they suddenly take on the role of the obstructors of everything, right? That's why. But here's what I'm saying. J- Jayapal, according to Punchbowl News thinks she can have her cake and eat it too. She can announce that she is being a good soldier. They're not going to kill the bill. They're going to they're going to take Biden in his word that he can get Mansion and Cinema to agree in the Senate. They're going to be good soldiers and you know do do what is best for the party. While a bunch of them vote no because Republicans are there to backstop them to vote yes. If you hand the other party that power, if the other party is politically savvy in any way, shape, or form, they'll vote no. They're not going to be – they're not asking Republicans – it's one thing to hand Joe Biden a bipartisan victory when the entire Democratic caucus is going to vote for his infrastructure bill, and then you vote on top of it because you want to show that you like this infrastructure spending. If you're a certain type of moderate Republican, whatever, not that there are all that many of them – Nonetheless, but it's another thing to be the deciding factor in the passage of the vote and to be the reason that the vote passed while Democrats get to vote against it. Politics 101 says you do not do that. Now, individual members may have reasons to vote yes on infrastructure no matter what, if they're, you know, depending on what's going on in their districts. But, uh, I think that's pretty nervy or silly or stupid uh, to hand your rivals 
uh, the power to kill the bill, then then they're going to say, well, we're not here to we're not here to satisfy Joe Biden's agenda. I'm sorry. We're not doing that. We're not we're not. You don't get you make the hard choice. We're not here to make the hard choice. You think you're being cute? We'll vote you down. It's too obvious. Again, I don't know how persuasive McCarthy can be. I don't know what the whip process is like in the Republican minority in the House. I don't know what the cross pressures are on the Republicans who would vote yes on the infrastructure bill uh, and what you know what it is that would cause them to really want to vote for it and not to do what I'm talking about. But I, I just doesn't make sense to me. We're seeing all the indications from the polling that we need that the voters Republicans need to get want them to obstruct, want them to do nothing, increasingly associate Democratic legislative goals with their worsening economic situation. Democrats have set Republicans up to be rewarded for being obstructionist. Why would they do anything different? It's just like, in that sense, it's just like 2010. Yeah. And the, and and given how crazed and complicated and months long this process has been, I mean, we, like we said, we follow this pretty closely and we're constantly confused. I mean, I, somebody needs to do a schoolhouse rock. I'm just a bill about this particular bit of legislation because it would help me understand what's going on. But Americans are, Noah's absolutely right. Those independent suburban voters are looking at $4 a gallon gas. They're looking at increased prices for chicken and and for milk and for, I just went to the grocery store, so this is on my mind. Prices have risen dramatically in a very short time and people have noticed. And those pocketbook issues combined with the polling data that shows that even people who were receiving those child benefits, for example, from the Biden plan, don't want them to be permanent. Like People are concerned about the direction of the country economically, and this is a lot of spending. So they don't want it. Right. So then there's part two of what happened yesterday. So Jayapal announces they're going to vote for the bill, assuming that Biden can talk Manchin. They're going to take on faith that Biden will successfully convince Manchin and Cinema to vote for the larger bill. And then Joe Manchin came out and said, now, hey, I'm happy to vote for a good bill and I'm equally happy to vote against a bad bill. And you can't ask me to support a bill that isn't written yet and that hasn't gone through a process where it is it's costed out and everything i'm seeing and then he delivers this seemingly fatal blow that i don't think quite people have quite uh cottoned onto yet where he says there's a lot of fake accounting going on that is that that is underpricing the cost of this bill and I am not comfortable with it. That undercounting the cost of the bill is being done by the White House in that document that it issued on Thursday or Friday of last week where it said that the bill would cost one point, I think it's $1.85 trillion if you add in the money for immigration, whatever that meant in the, in the budget document. Manchin fired a rocket at the White House. It said you are misleading the American people about the cost of this bill. And until I hear that it costs what I think it's supposed to cost from another source, I do not trust you. I do not trust the numbers that you are giving. They want to vote tomorrow? So here's where we're at, which is essentially exactly where we always were. The moderates being the obstacle to the passage of this bill. But in the interim, and Joe Biden, or Joe Biden, Joe Manchin might have played a masterful game here because in the interim, he's managed to shift the spotlight onto progressives as being the, the obstacle to passing this legislative agenda, all while whittling it down, while never having any intention of passing anything ever, but trying to avoid being blamed for it, and has managed to shift the narrative away from him and cinema, even though their opposition was always uh, immovable. And they were always going to be an obstacle to this well, legislation. It's pretty, it's pretty brilliant. And, and I have case. to say, though, he had a huge assist by a completely blinkered media because the media has been treating him as if he's the Sphinx. And every time they ask him a direct question, he gives a direct answer. And yet they're like, we still don't know what he's thinking. I'm like, he's telling you over and over again. You just don't want to report it because it goes against the narrative. Essentially what he is saying, and I guess Cinema, who is more Sphinx-like, is saying in the, in the gaps is, if the bill that comes to me doesn't strike me as being uh, insanely overexpensive and sort of comports with my general views, which is it isn't an attack on my state's central uh, product, which is coal, and if it isn't 
you know, in say, like, yeah, tax corporations, that's fine with me, you know, do this, do that. But um, as long as it comports with my general sense of things, of course, I'm a Democrat. I, li- I like to spend money. We'll, we'll spend the money. But uh, that is not – remember, the, the, by far the largest factor in this bill, in the big – the social spending bill, $550 billion, according to the White House's numbers, goes to clean energy initiatives. And clean energy initiatives can be looked at as an ideological assault on West Virginia, which is a you know whose number one product is coal. Now I know we don't want to think about it that way or talk about it that way because we want all sorts of multiplicity of this and that and the other thing. But um, that's why he want would want to vote against the bill. I mean, and and uh, so that that's the I think what's what's <laughs> so here we get back to what I'm trying to talk, which is this is a goat rodeo. This is this is not – they want to spend more money than has ever been spent in American political history. Let, let, let's just make this clear. If these two bills were to be voted on together and passed together, that would be in excess of $3 trillion in spending at one go. That's new. That has never happened before in American history, before the, before the um, pandemic emergency spending. Uh, the stimulus, the Obama stimulus, was the largest spending bill in American history. It was almost a trillion dollars. That was ten years ago. Taken together, this would be in excess of three trillion. Um, what uh, you know, you're just going to pass it on the fly without a, without a written bill? Uh, are you kidding? I mean, are you kidding me? Like. How stupid do they think the American people are? I mean, they think the American people, and a lot of the American people are stupid and will believe whatever they're told them on either side. But you're not going to fundamentally revise the social contract of the United States without a without a moment at which people look at it and say, okay, you know, we're going ahead. Here's what's happening. This, 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 and this. Where, I mean, Noah, you you keep mentioning that, you know, Obamacare was passed after, uh, you know, it was passed after a year's debate over its provisions, constant debate over would there be a public option? Wouldn't there be a public option? What's going to be in it? How are they going to pay for it? Is this a tax? Is it not a tax? Can we tax it? Do we make it a fee? Yet, I mean, all of this was happening in public. We still don't know what's in this bill because there is no bill. And they were talking yesterday afternoon, Pramila Jaipal was talking about passing a spending bill around $2 trillion without a bill. Because they don't care what's in it. Well, they (laughs) don't care what's in it. But, I mean, this country has not become a banana republic yet. That's crazy. This is a major political party in the United States that has controlled the House, the Senate, and the presidency. I mean, the big question mark is if, you, if Obamacare is the the analogous, you know, uh, condition, then it was uh, uh, Scott Brown's victory in the Massachusetts special Senate election that January of uh, 2010 that forced them to to pass what whatever the you know the senate had and what have you it wasn't it wasn't the perfect bill but they that lit a fire under actually getting this thing into law and i mean it's not a perfect analogy because democrats had far larger majorities in in congress um than they do today but what happens in virginia obviously shakes up the political environment significantly does it paralyze them does it does it as opposed to in 2010, when Democrats knew they were walking into a buzzsaw and they were doing it for the good of their party and for long-held legislative objectives. Um, you know, this was Teddy Kennedy's dream, right? Yeah. So it had to be done. And they knew they were going to suffer for it. Do Democrats have that same... Are Democrats that unified now? I, clearly not. Clearly not. They're much more motivated by their own individual political circumstances. So does Virginia shut this thing down as opposed to the Massachusetts race, which lit a fire under Obamacare. Um, I, I don't think it shuts it down, but I, I just want to sort of restate my point from before to make it clear. Um, if Manchin, 
is no ultimately here on everything the the story the narrative is no longer about and this was a narrative that that has penetrated through to the mainstream the narrative is no longer about the democrats who can't get their act together it will be about mansion killing the bill right and that's but that's something of a loss only if they get the only if the house votes it in because this could all fall apart i mean this is where noah's scenario is interesting is what is the net impact now the obvious net impact that would follow the parallel with obamacare would actually be even though it's 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 very imprecise would be they panic and they vote in infrastructure they already have the senate vote on infrastructure is done 69 senators meaning 19 republicans voted for the infrastructure bill. They go to the House, they drop the social spending bill, they pass the infrastructure bill, and then it goes through on the grounds that they need a win. They've got Republicans on the ropes on on infrastructure because there's already a Senate bill and doesn't have to go through another process. And they take the win that they can have. But it only takes three progressives to kill that and if, as I started out with, Republicans in the House sent blood in the water and the blood is Democratic blood and what they get is to humiliate the party and go back to their voters saying, we stopped the, social, we stopped the socialists from taking over America, they'll, they'll take it and then it won't be Joe Manchin. I mean, Democrats will try to make it about Joe Manchin and cinema. But I'm not sure that's going to be the takeaway, or at least, you know, the goat rodeo stuff has all been in the House. Well, and that message that even so, if they if the if they don't pass anything, if they if if Youngkin wins and it doesn't light the fire for them to just to, for the progressives to shut up and just pass hard infrastructure and for drop their social stuff for now, it they're going to the message that they would go back to their all of the Democrats would go back to their districts with is what we 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 tried to get something done and the republicans blocked us but that message as we said earlier isn't going to resonate in the same way because people really don't want all this spending so what i mean the, it's a strange whatever their political calculations it doesn't make sense in terms of a strategy for the midterms also two things one is you go back to the version you say i was impotent i wanted something but i didn't get it we couldn't get it up we we were we were uh, we were ineffectual at best and incompetent at worst, and all of our objectives failed. Vote reelect reelect me. Okay, that's number one. Or number two is, uh, uh, gee, um, sorry, uh, the Republicans are terrible. Republicans are just terrible reelect me. Okay, now in a lot of these cases they're not they're not facing they're not going to face a rival. Um it's just the entire party nationally is going to be in a state of discombobulation in which it reached too high, reached too far, you know, uh fell down, broke their hip. And, you know, and and are going to have an, a hugely hard time healing. And that's the atmosphere in which they're going to run in 2022. It's not that any individual Pramila Jayapal isn't going to lose her seat over this because I assume that, you know, no one is going to primary her from the left necessarily. And a, Democrat, a Republican can't win her district. But uh, the entire atmosphere will be we had this power. And we screwed it up. Vote vote for us in 2022. It's not great. I mean, you know, I, I don't know how you spin that in a way that makes people enthusiastic about voting. And if the bank shot is vote for me because of Donald Trump, you know, that's where the Yunkin, that's where what happens tonight is actually fairly critical in Virginia. Because if it turns out that we've misread or a lot of the people are misreading what's going on and that McAuliffe wins and this then justifies the Trump is so frightening to so many people that just deploying him as a message will be enough 
to make the difference, even in an election in which he is not on the ballot and is not president. Uh, I think such an outcome would surprise even Democrats at this point. I know. And they have done so much to try to make that stick to the point of just be clowning themselves, falling over their falling, you know, face planting, trying to make this narrative stick and it's not sticking. So if that did work, uh, everybody would be shocked by it. So, well, guys, point let, me, telling, let me just oh, – so go ahead. I was just going to say, to the point of Democrats telling uh, voters that the things that the voters are claiming to be concerned about aren't their real concerns. They're, right. you know, dog whistles or whatnot. Right. Okay. Um, so let me uh, just step back and talk to you about uh, my friend Dan Senor and his podcast Post-Corona, uh, which I've been on three times and which um, is really uh, – not just because I've been on it three times, but is – one of the most fascinating conversations you'll hear a weekly discussion of uh, America in the age of COVID and what it's going to be like as America emerges from COVID and how we have fought COVID and whether we've been good or bad at it. And his new episode is a pip. Uh, he talks to the Wall Street Journal's uh, correspondent, Gregory Zuckerman, uh, about his new book, A Shot to Save the World, The Inside Story of the Life or Death Race for a COVID-19 Vaccine. And what is so fresh and rich about this, commentary podcast listeners and commentary magazine readers uh, will uh, recall uh, our tech commentary columnist, Jim Meggs, talking about the miracle of the vaccine uh, and the fact that it is so rare uh, in this time of anxiety for people to sort of step back and think what are the lessons of this astonishing eight-month uh, production of the vaccine and then mass distribution of it, uh, you know, a first, a real breakthrough in American uh, politics, American know-how, American exceptionalism, and this is really the subject of Zuckerman's book and everything uh, that he and Dan talk about on this episode of Post-Corona so please go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to Post Corona. Listen to this podcast. You will be enlightened. You will be entertained. And you will be very happy you did so. That's Post Corona with Dan Senor and his conversation with Gregory Zuckerman about the development of the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, okay, so, so uh, Virginia tonight, New Jersey tonight. Um, we're so granular about this that it's now come, it's now at the point where sort of the political press now seems to think that McAuliffe is the underdog, uh, having thought that, you know, he was, he was going to walk in just like three or four months ago. Uh, the polling averages now have Yunkin up by one and a half to 1.7%. That's 538 and real clear politics. Um, the spin is going to be interesting because uh, for people like us, it's going to be, oh, my God, Yunkin didn't, you know, if Yunkin loses, it'll be like, oh, my God, he was supposed to win. Really? He was only supposed to win, like, beginning last Thursday, you know, beginning on Thursday was the first time he was supposed to win. And, but, you know, everything moves so fast and social media, you know, drills, drills conventional wisdom into your head. So he's already now the front runner. And now if McAuliffe, you know, does okay, uh it's going to be judged a terrible disappointment for Youngkin and, and and the salvation of the Democrats and proof that Republicans don't have a good message or anything like that. Anybody going to buy that? Yeah, the political press will. I mean, yeah, the people who, who narrative shape and narrative set will, will totally buy that. <clears throat> but like you said, it's worth reminding everybody that Virginia is more or less a blue state, has been for the better part of a decade. Maybe even a whole decade at this point, actually. No, better part of a decade. And um, and Republicans have, have mounted a spectacular comeback, uh, as far as the polling suggests. And it's not, and again, it's not just the Virginia's governor race we should be focusing on here. It's the House of Burgesses. In my state, it's the assembly races. Um, and, you know, maybe even the governor's there race. Is there is a great trivia question. There is a great trivia question that the legislature in Virginia is called the House of Burgesses. Like, where is that? Shouldn't that be? That should be like the $2,000 daily double clue. I'm well, sorry. old dominion for a reason. I know. Um, but also the Atla- the mayor of Atlanta. You know, New York City. All these, all these races matter in terms not just of who wins, who loses, but turnout, 
um, you know, what, who showed up to the polls and, and what numbers, all that stuff is what's going to really matter. So yes, if, if the headline is Glenn Youngkin wins, that's unambiguous. But even if both Democrats win in both these states and the state house races, there's still plenty of indications you can draw from those results that will confirm what I believe is that the polls are right and that the, the environment is turning against Democrats nationally. Well, and one of the things that that four years of Trump did to the political press is kind of addle their brains about looking at these strains in, in the political uh, mood, because what I would have loved to have been reading for the past few months with all these races is an examination of just what color blue a state like Virginia is, because most of the Democrats who've been winning there aren't progressives. They're pretty moderate Democrats. You know, they're winning in a in a part of the country that's still pretty Southern, considered Southern. You know, they have to kind of bring together a lot of suburban voters and different coalitions. So the idea that 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 McAuliffe, who suddenly went pretty progressive in his platform and in it, certainly in his rhetoric, is is the same blue as even Northam was, is is doesn't strike me as as true. But because Trump is so such a huge uh, figment in the mind of all these political journalists, still, it's always in contrast to Trump. So, like any, however progressive McAuliffe is, he's not as bad. You know, he's he's fighting against a Trumpkin, as they were all calling Youngkin throughout this race. So that we're missing, we're missing that analysis. Now, those of us on the right have been looking at that. We've been looking at it, you know, since the squad became the squad, but I'm missing that in some of the mainstream political reporting. And I, and I, I'm disappointed that we won't, that they won't tease out those strains. I think it's not just uh, the presence of Trump or the, the, the looming uh, figure of Trump. Um, it's also that the press has started to treat moderate Democrats as if they were Republicans. So, you know, they don't want to, so they don't want to talk about, you know, what, what shade of blue, uh, a a state like Virginia may be because it's, it's to them, it's almost like, you know, admitting that, that it's already Republican. Well, if Youngkin wins, I mean, this probably doesn't hold in 2022 because all indications are that Donald Trump will be out there in a very, very visible way. But if, if Youngkin wins, Democrats are scared of deploying that, you know, he might as well be Trump tactic, right? Well, you would think, yeah. But I mean, or or they would, or what they know is they need more. Like McAuliffe's message is, uh, he's Trump and I love the teachers unions. So, um, so much so. And everybody that, else is racist. You have to right, add that because that's been right. the whole last week of his campaign. <laughs> So once again, as I started the podcast by saying I, I I labor to believe that the Democratic Party is as incompetent in Washington as it looks like, that there's some secret sauce I'm missing. There's some, you know, there's some layer of competence that I don't understand and that I'm missing it. And I'm 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 modest enough, I think, to recognize that I could be wrong about all this and that they're up to something. They're playing four-dimensional chess. And that's true in McAuliffe, in the McAuliffe-Yunkin race, too, because what happened yesterday uh, seems inexplicable to me unless you really, unless there are two possibilities. And last night's rally, closing rally for McAuliffe featured Teachers Union President Randy Weingarten. So I look at that and I say, that's crazy. Like, um... Every indication we have is that the education issue is breaking against him and that this is not really helpful to him. Why is this his closing message? Why is he going with Randy Weingarten as the representative of the status quo, close the schools, teachers union supporting? That just seems crazy to me. But then it's like, well, maybe that's because I live in a bubble and they do a lot of research and they have a lot of this and they know that there's something good here and that there are two or three sotto voce things going on that uh, activating the idea that teachers are heroes and the teachers union people are good somehow is going to help in places that I don't really understand. And all of the Yunkin is just, you know, a Klansman in a, in a, in a sweater, a Trump Klansman monster in a sweater vest who is going to put y'all back in chains uh that they know something that i don't know and that this is actually going to activate push buttons and drive people to the polls in a way that i i don't see it doing that's that's admirably humble but i'm quite sure you know exactly what they're doing here which is to activate unenthusiastic african-american voters and activate unenthusiastic white suburban women 
That's and their theory. Focus, yeah. Right. And I, that's, well, okay. that, that's, that's yeah. their theory, and it's your theory, and it's probably the right theory, but I would love to read a profile of the Democratic voter who wasn't going to turn out, but then Randy Weingarten showed up, and man, that changed everything. Well, and get he- off the couch for Randy. And his claim, because remember, she was there and what he was announcing was this this plan to go ahead and like hire more black teachers. We need more black teachers. Like it was just this kind of last minute, you know, by the way, I'm if you elect me, I'm going to make sure there are more black teachers. OK, fine. You can have a proposal to get to to recruit and train and hire more black teachers. That's fine. But but the last minute kind of I'm throwing everything at the wall to see what makes it stick. And and honestly, Randy Weingarten, I felt like he was just paying off a debt because she got she got out her voters and probably gave a lot of money to his campaign through the union i mean i I don't that's what i'm saying i'm saying this is their theory of the case and as i look at what's going on in virginia i look at glenn youngkin's polling surge where he's come up i think a net seven points in you know in in six weeks after mcauliffe said that thing in the debate about how parents shouldn't have a role in schools and i look at this and i say Okay, they have this theory that they need to activate unenthusiastic African Americans and people, you know, and unenthusiastic suburban liberals. Um, and then I say, okay, they have that theory and it makes sense. This is a bad way to do it unless I they know something I don't know. And by the way, I I think they don't. I think that this is that's what I'm saying. It's like you should never underestimate, you know, your enemy. But um, you can also overestimate your enemy in some ways. And I think uh, for the last month or six weeks, particularly if you take Washington as an example, everybody I know on the right is like, well, I mean, obviously these bills are going to pass. I mean, because it doesn't make sense that they're not going to pass. And what are they doing? And eventually they're going to pass. But, you know, they really may not pass. And on the other hand, I understand the impulse to say, I mean, they're not, you know, they're not the New York 1962 Mets. They just won a huge election and all this. Like, you know, this is ridiculous. But maybe but they are the, the 1962 Yankees Mets. Either. Huh? But they're not the 27 Yankees either. Well, that's that. Look, that's for damn sure. Uh, and, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, one way in which they're not the 1927 Yankees, something that, that, that Abe was, I think, particularly um, upset about. Uh, uh in relation to afghanistan but before i do that let me uh let me bring up our friends at um express vpn um you know every time you connect to an unencrypted network with your computer cafes hotels airports your online data is not secure any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data your passwords your financial details your social security numbers whatever is there they can get it. And that is why ExpressVPN's system is so important. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is needed. A smart 12-year-old could do it, and your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to 1000 bucks selling your personal info on the dark web. So what does ExpressVPN do to help you? It has an encrypted tunnel that creates a secure Uh, connection between your device and the internet so that hackers can't steal your sensitive data. It's super secure. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. It's easy to use. You fire up the app and one button clicked and you're protected. And it works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets, and more so you can stay secure on the go. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash commentary. And you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash commentary. Um, Abe, uh, you noted uh, an absolutely horrifying story yesterday uh, about what is going on in Afghanistan. Not, not by the way, with the Americans who are still trapped there, uh, who I think number about 100 uh, I guess there's still 100, even though 346, according to the State Department, I think on Sunday or Monday, uh, have been exfiltrated after they told us there were only 100 there. 346 were somehow exfiltrated. 
So that would be that there were there's there was a net negative 246 Americans left in Afghanistan, except there are still Americans left in Afghanistan trapped there. Okay, forget it. That wasn't the thing. The thing has to do with uh, Afghanis left behind to suffer the uh, depredations and monstrosities of the Taliban regime. So a friend sent me this article uh, on CNN's website. Uh, starts off with a, about a family in the provinces who ha- are fast running out of money um, because, um, as was noted at the time when we left Afghanistan, something that uh, people would say about the Taliban is, oh, well, now, now let's see them try to run a country um, as if that there was some vindication in that. Um, the, the fact that they can't run the country is a huge problem. It means people are going to starve, uh, and they are. Uh, so, uh, this one family was, uh, had to sell, they already had sold one of their children, I think a 12 year old, uh, to, uh, an older man for a, as a, for a, to be a child bride. Um, and now they were on the verge of selling, I believe their nine year old, um, for something like $2,000 in sheep cash. And I don't remember what else. Uh, and then there were other families, and apparently this is absolutely on the rise now. This is this is now an ongoing problem, um, as it was before the U.S. was there. This is this is one of the consequences. Um, part of the issue, and this is more longitudinally, is that because girls can now not go to school again, and boys can, um, they are uh, that that's half the workforce again. Um, out of commission, um, more poverty, uh, more child slavery. Um, it is a horrifying reality. And I just want to contrast this with the you know preposterous statement that Biden made when we left that the U.S. will continue in this administration will continue to speak out about women's rights and human rights in Afghanistan. Great. Good. This is I mean, they're, part, they're oh, holding women hostage in another way. Uh, the Taliban government officials are now saying, you know, we, we haven't abandoned young girls, even though they're not allowed to go to school. We fully intend to integrate them into educational facilities. We just need the international community to fund it because we, we all our aid is cut off. All our resources are frozen in the United States and nobody's helping us out. So just, you know, throw us a couple billion bucks and then women can go to schools again. It's naked extortion, and I fully expect the international community to fold with the best of intentions, of course. And and for no girl to see the inside well, of, of the school yeah, right. after yeah, that check is yeah. cashed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, first of all, I thought we, we believed that the Taliban was flush because it controlled the opium trade. So I'm not entirely clear why they wouldn't still have a cash crop that they could rely on uh, to um, to satisfy their financial needs um, uh, worldwide cash crop okay fine whatever this is part of the horror of the handling of afghanistan really from 20 from sort of the beginning of the obama administration even though obama did surge troops to try to help win the whatever um what we did there that was good what we did to help the afghan people and by the way what we have done what we did and what we have done to help the iraqi people in these two vastly unpopular wars that according to, you know, conventional opinion should never have been fought or, you know, maybe Afghanistan should have been fought for three weeks and then stopped or whatever it is that people, you know, have gone back reflexively to think. Um, we did an immense amount of good for the people of Iraq and the people of Afghanistan, relatively speaking to where they might otherwise have been, people of Iraq left to the depredations of Saddam Hussein and his psychotic sons who would have succeeded him had there been no intervention and he would have died and God knows what they would have done and all of that. And there is Iraq in 2021. It is the only functioning semi-democratic state in the Arab world and it is functioning as such. And in Afghanistan, we are now seeing what has been lost, right? Judges, you know, it, w- women women are just a sort of are, 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 are one large example, but they're an example. In other words, you had this totally um, 
you know, oppressed half of the population, the female half of the population, denied education, denied the right to go out in the street without being fully covered, uh, you know, uh, free to be beaten uh, by uh, by religious police who decided that they weren't behaving properly on the streets, that kind of thing. That all ended. Uh, the education system changed. Judges, teachers, political professionals, doctors over 20 years uh, Afghanistan, which had had a relatively liberal policy toward females in education in the 70s before the Soviets came in and then, you know, everything went to hell. Um, nobody told the American people that this was happening. You know, we published some articles. Jonathan Foreman wrote a piece in 2012 about about the, you know, revolutionary alteration of Afghanistan no president. Trump treated it like it was garbage. Obama basically treated Afghanistan like it was garbage. And obviously Biden decided he was washing his hands of it. We were doing good there. Maybe it's possible that the cost was not worth the, you know, the, you know, the expense was not worth the value. I don't know what you want to talk about. But the simple fact of the matter is had the American people had some understanding of the of the virtues that we the virtue of our interventions there uh they might have had uh they might have been less surprised i mean they they might have supported and made it impossible for biden to do what he did with the bug out um but you know they might have actually thought well we got something for the money and i heard tony blinken on 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 face the nation on sunday say what joe biden did was prevent another generation from being mired in Afghanistan. Every single person who served in Afghanistan from 2001 until the president was a volunteer in the U.S. Armed Forces. And a lot of people joined the Armed Forces after September 11th because they wanted to serve their country and fight the monsters who had done this to us. And treating them as though they are people without agency, a generation that had somehow been mired against their will, sort of like the Vietnam generation, is a libel against people who had chose, for whatever reason, multiplicity of reasons, to serve in our armed forces abroad to try to help You know what leaders thought was in our national interest. It is a contemptuous line that is motivated the people who say it don't have servicemen and women in their lives if you've known somebody who served there active duty or retired they were crushed by what happened in afghanistan it was psychologically devastating mm -hmm. and, and we have we have data to prove it in the numbers of uh servicemen and women who are calling helplines who are uh, god help us committing suicide of mm -hmm. the, the amount of depression that followed our abject surrender and retrenchment from uh, Afghanistan was really significant. And it also assumes that we're not going back. And that's an assumption I'm not willing to right. make. Not right. when this administration is saying that within a year, both ISIS and Al Qaeda will be able to export terrorism abroad. Any administration that allows that to happen is negligent and incompetent and deserves to be removed from office. And to couple the line about how we've saved a generation from, from having to go over there and fight with the idea that it wasn't a success to begin with. Um, that takes all the credit away from these men and women, these American soldiers who did do these, accomplish these extraordinary things. Right? And signals um, that, yeah. it, it signals that they're, and that they don't mind consigning an entire generation, particularly of Afghan women, to the fate that they are now uh, suffering. Also, people join the military for many reasons if they want to join the military. But one of the reasons that people join the military is and I don't say this, you know, in a condescending or anything like that. Is for the glory, is for the recognition and understanding that they have put their lives on the line for something larger, and the refusal of our political class, except to say I thank you for your service and we love our vets and look we're spending so much money on the VA and stuff like that, to say these are the best of us and look what they've done. Look, look what they have done without a country that is willing not to treat them as, you know, 
PTSD victims who are, you know, waking up at night screaming in horror and need to be treated like they're invalids. But as people, as grown men and women who did something uh, of, of value at the risk of their lives and that that kind of makes them better uh, than, than, than the rest of us. They're doing something better with their lives, more valuable with their lives than most of the rest of us. They were denied that. They are continuing to be denied that. And that's one of the reasons that the helplines are being called. It's not just that they're, what the, what their sacrifices were turned into, you know, were turned into ash and wormwood. It is that, it is that they, they understand that the political leaders of their country do not value what they did and think that it was worthless and and much of the recompense for doing what they did was not just to do the sacrifice but to be recognized for the sacrifice and hearing tony blinken say it speak in that way is just it's enraging and heartbreaking and i i just so wish it were otherwise and trump deserves an enormous amount of blame here too and don't think he doesn't like he loves our vets so he shouldn't have treated what they did as though it was valueless um now let me uh stop for a moment and talk to you about the very chair that i'm sitting in now the x chair i never actually look forward to sitting in my office until i got my x i mean who looks forward to sitting in your office you just sit there and do your work, and you go oh, and get up, and you know, go to the water cooler, whatever. But uh, can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? Yours can't, but my ex chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? I'm betting you your current one can't, unless you own the X chair. It's all in the LMX massage and temperature regulation, exclusively designed and made for X chair. And once you feel the customized support of X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL. Your back will never be happy in any other chair ever again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all the reasons to love an X chair. Take my advice. Try X chair for yourself. Risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. I promise. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call one 844 4 chair for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com. Uh, I just wanted to share with you guys a really fantastic a detail from uh, today's lead editorial, yesterday, so yesterday's lead editorial in the um, in the New York Post uh, about New York City's Department of Education speaking about teachers and teachers and the roles that they have played in in our lives um, and the shutdown of schools and all that. So the Department of Education was required by law <coughs> to report on <coughs> the number of students in schools for reasons involving tax, you know, taxes and whatever. Uh, and they had to do it by October 31st. And they announced that uh, the number of students had declined from 955,000 to 938,000. Now, this is weird because according to the, first of all, because according to the census, which came out, New York City's population grew over the last 10 years from 8.5 million to 8.75 million. So it actually doesn't make sense even that this, the student population could possibly decline. Nonetheless, this number, it turns out, is a fraud. That um, they counted people in a, kids in a program that they never counted before in the previous year. And that if you were counting apples to apples, in fact, the number of kids in the city school system is 869,000 compared to 938, or a decline of almost 10% year to year, a drop of 10%. Now, we don't know what that means. It could be that people fled to private schools. There was some increase in charter school um, populations, um, which, you know, you can't really, there aren't enough kids to go into charter schools, only a 4,000 kid increase in charter schools. Nonetheless, uh, people are voting with their feet in some fashion out of, out of this nightmare 
uh, or 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 kids are just dropping out on mass, having had an absolutely horrendous experience uh, during COVID, in which you know all they had was this nonsense Zoom classes where they weren't even in class or didn't have any time in class. There was no participation. There was nothing. And these are the people that we're supposed to listen to when Terry McAuliffe says parents shouldn't have a role in the education of their kids. Uh, I assume that this number is not unique to New York. I assume that we're going to be seeing numbers like this everywhere in which um, there has been a kind of weird withdrawal from schooling. Um, And uh, that's why this issue is just at the very beginning. And I want to point out one other thing, not that I want to monologize here, but uh, there's a very interesting piece on Real Clear Politics this morning um, about uh, the anal- analogies here between the um, the Virginia governor's race and a race, a very important race back in uh, 1991, the Senate race in, in Pennsylvania between uh, Richard Thornburg, who had been governor of the state and was the sitting attorney general of the United States, and a kind of longtime Democratic political operative named Harris Wofford. By the time the election rolled around in 1991, Wofford crushed Thornburg, won by 10 points, 55-45. Why, why is this worth uh, noting, uh, as, as it was noted in this piece by Bob Pipkin? Well, Wofford surfaced health care as a national issue. He said it was a crisis. It's the worst thing that we've ever seen. It's hard for people to understand this 30 years later, but healthcare was not a major issue in the, in the discussion in American policy politics before 1991. Mostly it was discussed in terms of social security spending or catastrophic healthcare plans and in, in not much other ways. And the Wofford campaign run by a then unknown political consultant named James Carville surfaced healthcare as an issue, snuck up behind Thornburg and crushed him with it. And then that that is what led Bill Clinton to use healthcare as a major wedge issue in 1992 to beat George H.W. Bush with and help win him the election, leading to some wild mistakes down the road with healthcare politically after that. But those two elections were the healthcare elections that surfaced the issue and brought it to the center of American politics. If Yunkin wins tomorrow, education is going to be the issue. Not that it's not been a major political, but the educate all this panoply of issues relating to education, not only the ideological infiltration of the schools, but the power of teachers unions, the behavior of school boards, the um, the uh, replacement of uh, actual parents by paternalistic liberal overseers, all of that, that is the Wofford healthcare issue of 2021. What that was to Thornburg, who did not see it coming and did not understand what was about to happen to him, nor did any Republican, that was the canary in the coal mine, and that's what we may be seeing here. Christine, you've been writing a lot about this. What's your what's your take? Yeah, I, I agree. I have I have uh, I have arguments with my well-intentioned liberal friends about this all the time um, because they really do believe that that when Republicans talk about uh, schools and education and what their kids are reading and what they're being told by their teachers, that that's all a dog whistle because critical race theory isn't being taught in schools, for example, and we should just trust the experts. There, there's this this does speak to a larger division between the technocratic elite, which leans left in this country, and their their absolute blinding faith and expertise, and the rest of the country, which included people who used to also trust the experts, but after a year and a half of a pandemic and and the all the stuff that we've been talking about on this podcast since we went daily, don't have that trust anymore. That trust has eroded and they are looking for other political options to express their concerns. And when their concerns are are responded to by the technocratic elite as that's not a real concern. That's not a real problem. That's just a dog whistle. Like you've fallen for the trick that the other side is playing. They'll turn and look for someone else who will actually address their concern. Youngkin has been doing that. Um, You know, he's, he's not always done it capably. I thought his ad about the Toni Morrison book was kind of ridiculous, but 
he's he's at least making an attempt to listen to what they're saying and and you know go with that politically and i think we're going to see more of that and it's not just parents with kids in public schools either everyone should be concerned about the state of public education in this country because that gener- kids who are who go to public schools are our future leaders and we need to do better and the unions are a problem clearly there's that in, that has not faded the intensity of uh, disaffection with teachers unions these are actually i think good things culturally we need it, it, these folks have had power unchallenged for a very long time one final point which is that to the extent that these issues surface locally that is what american politics is supposed to be uh, using presidential elections as uh, culture war things is all well and good, but uh, but the presidency or the ship of state is too vast, is too large. It's like a cruise ship. It needs two miles to make a turn uh, because it's so big that, you know, it, 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 it can't maneuver well. Um, if, if, if there has been an activation at the local level of activism – uh, relating to issues where people can really make a difference individually in low turnout, low participation, low numerical elections like school boards and, and other things, up to governorships, which of course are, there's still millions of people who vote in a governor's election, but it's not 150 million people like in a presidential election. That is how change happens organically and properly. You know, it's not top down. It's at it's at eye level. And uh, depending on whose ox is gored, uh, suddenly community activists like Barack Obama don't like to see people getting up at school boards saying, I don't like what you're doing two blocks from where I live. No, they're terrorists in that case. Yeah, they're terrorists (laughs) for being community activists because their community activism, of course, isn't uh, isn't acceptable because it doesn't conform with the ideological priors of the community activist community. So uh, this is an interesting moment and uh, we will we will be analyzing it thoroughly tomorrow morning. Uh, Till then, for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.